0: No anaesthetic, no power and seemingly no respite from Israeli bombing. Today we take you inside
1: Gaza's largest hospital which is bearing the brunt of the war with Hamas. We also go back to Hawaii three months after wildfires ravaged the state and open the curtain on the British pantomime. The World in 10 brings you the big news stories of the day explained and analysed by The Times of London.
0: Today with Tom Harrigan and Stuart Willey.
2: sound
1: of a young girl with a head injury having stitches put in at the biggest hospital in gaza without any local anesthetic because there isn't any left we're talking about the El Shifa hospital in Gaza City, which has become a refuge for huge numbers of people since Israel's war with Hamas began just over a month ago. Now, conditions have
0: been hugely challenging there for weeks, not just in terms of overcrowding, but a lack of vital supplies. And today, the health ministry in Gaza, which is controlled by Hamas, claims operations have now been suspended at Al Shifa because the fuels run out. Now, the Times can't independently verify those claims. Israel, also hasn't commented on reports that it's launched repeated bombing raids on the hospital with snipers targeting anyone seen moving outside it but the red cross says the situation is distressing and what we do know is israel believes hamas has an enormous network of tunnels underneath the hospital making it in its eyes a legitimate military target
1: all the while, doctors are still trying to treat the injured without the equipment they'd usually have.
2: This is the director of Al
1: Shifa, explaining how tricky it is for his staff to carry out procedures without anaesthetic. Either the patient suffers pain or loses their life, he says. So we say it's better for the patient to be in extreme pain.
0: And this comes as support for Israel's campaign against Hamas appears to be weakening slightly. On Wednesday's World in 10, we talked about America's backing for the war, or at least the way it's being carried out, seemingly fraying at the edges. And now President Macron of France has waded in, telling Israel it needs to, in his words, stop killing babies and women in Gaza. The Times' in Jerusalem, Anshel Pfeffer, gave us his take.
2: There was always going to be a lot of international pressure on this. On the one hand, there's backing from the American government, and from the British government, there was from the French, there's from the Germans. Most Western governments backed Israel's campaign in Gaza, understanding that Israel needs to respond to what happened on October 7th and basically remove Hamas from power in Gaza degrade its uh, military capabilities. At the same time, there was always going to be a lot of pressure and concern over uh, the amount of civilians being killed as a result of this campaign. When you speak to Israeli officers, those who are commanding the forces, they're very aware of the fact that they probably only have limited time to continue this level of operations there, because at some point, international pressure on the Israeli government will bring about, if not a ceasefire, then some kind of limitations on the level of forces Israel's using there.
1: Today, in an interview with The Times, the former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak has warned time is running out. The mounting toll on Palestinians means international solidarity is being lost.
0: Let's take a moment to look back, because it's now been three months since that devastating inferno that roared through Lahaina on the Hawaiian island of Maui. This week, police have released body cam video showing their responses during the disaster. This comes as some reports say mistakes by the authorities in Hawaii could have
1: cost lives. Nearly a hundred people died. The governor blames. Climate change. And following the disaster, homelessness, mental health problems, and conspiracy theories have all spiked. We heard from local journalist Billy V on how the rebuilding is going.
0: The recovery is going. Uh, there are thousands of people on the island of Maui that still don't have a place to live and they're in temporary housing at this time. Jobs, tourism to help us regenerate money back into the economy and help to get things going. Lahaina still looks a lot of the way that it did two weeks after the disaster a lot of the debris is still toxic and so that has to be removed but it has to be done in a process and then the question is where does all that debris go probably the biggest star in the world of women's soccer is megan rapinoe and this weekend, the two-time world champion and Ballon d'Or winner takes to the pitch for the very last time.
1: Her last game before retirement is in San Diego today. We heard from The Times' senior sports writer, Matt Dickinson. He says she's one of the greatest players of the century.
2: Really, it's, it's been one of the most significant football careers of the of the last 10 to 20 years. You know, I, I put it that high. I mean, that's, you know, talking men's and women's games. I mean, you've got, obviously, the male superstars that we know about Ronaldo and Messi are you know sort of over a billion followers between them on Instagram and you know they they are sort of untouchable as global superstars but Megan Rapinoe is you know for for her sport and and for all the causes she fights for
0: it's those causes that mean she's famous well beyond fans of soccer and ended up in the middle of the culture wars Matt told us how she refused
2: to know her place as, as so many activists do, I think from a sort of personal place, she came out in 2012. You know, she was already a sort of this very established player by then. And obviously, you know, LGBTQ rights became one of those causes for her. But I think it also just finding her voice with that empowered her to look at the wider world as well. So she joined, you know, the Colin Kaepernick, who's the, the, the quarterback who took the the first prominent player to take the knee um you know against police brutality in the u.s and she was um as far as i understand the first sort of you know prominent white athlete to join him and um, doing so in in a national anthem that brought a huge backlash against her you know many people you know deriding her as unpatriotic megan rapinoe st- you know stuck to her guns she was willing to to fight for causes even when it was was pretty unpopular and, and caused a lot of, of heat and I think she can um, she will leave the game in that sense holding her head very high.
0: I hate to be that person, Stuart but we are now just 44 days away from Christmas. Don't remind Uh, me. Apologies. Well, here in the UK, all the big retailers have released their festive TV adverts in the last week or so. The supermarket shelves are filling up with turkeys and tickets are flying out the door for a quintessentially British Christmas tradition, the pantomime.
1: Oh, quick confession from me. I... have never seen a pantomime.
0: that's okay. For you and all our international friends listening to the podcast, let me give you a very quick history of the panto. It dates back in its current form to the 19th century. Essentially, theatres across Britain put on a Christmas show based very loosely on a classic fairy tale or children's story like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs or Sleeping Beauty and then Turn Up the Slapstick to 11 now no matter the story there are a few things that appear in every panto so the hero's mother known as the pantomime dame is played by a man in drag there will also be at least two people dressed up as a horse or a cow so one of them is there just to provide the back legs (laughs) audience participation is mandatory stewards along the lines of an actor pretending not to be aware of some imminent danger so the crowd can shout it's behind you and there are songs and rhymes Deliberately badly written, like this from well-known panto star Julian Clary in Cinderella. I'll help that Cinderella because her life's short of laughter. She gave me her twigs, even though she didn't after. <laughs> dear, oh dear. It's not Shakespeare, I know, but it's not meant to be, in fairness. And in fact, pantomimes are really important for theatres, particularly outside the big cities, because they draw in much bigger crowds than most of their other shows through the year. Or at least they did until Covid came along. However, as the Times arts correspondent David Sanderson tells
2: us, things are looking up. The key thing here is that regional theatres in particular are reporting that their sales, ticket sales are higher than they were in 2019 which is a landmark given of course that it was the last year before the pandemic struck, causing chaos throughout the performing arts and wider cultural field. So you know, it's no secret that many arts organisations have struggled and indeed are still struggling, but pantomime seems to be bucking the trend and does seem to be the first, is about to say art form, but with inverted commas, the first art form that does seem to be returning to the pre-COVID levels of interest, which is a very British story.
1: The interesting thing is it's apparently grandparents driving this revival. They tend to be the ones buying the tickets to go to Panto with their grandchildren. And it seems they're finally confident enough in larger numbers to return to public places like theatres, having been told to shield for so long during Covid. Are you confident enough then? Are you sold? Shall I book us a couple of tickets? Oh yes, it's as if my fairy godmother has granted all my wishes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your time today. Those were the top world stories in 10 with The Times of London.